Alright, when you go on a vacation, you should take some good books with you. I tried to do exactly that, and one of the volumes I chose to take with me was The Signal and the Noise, subtitled Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't, by Nate Silver. This is a work that's worth talking about at some greater length in some future shows. Nate Silver is a statistician, writer, and founder of the New York Times political blog 538.com. He was also the developer of a system of forecasting baseball performance, P-E-C-O-T-A, and was named, I guess it was last year, as one of the world's 100 most influential people by Time Magazine. It's a 400-plus page book, but all I want to talk about today in relation to science is Chapter 4, which included some information which this correspondent found highly provocative. It's a book about predictions, good predictions and bad predictions, And Nate Silver in this chapter talks about predicting the weather. In fact, he starts by talking about Hurricane Katrina. Turns out that the predictions for Hurricane Katrina were just much better than they used to be as of, you know, even 20 years ago. In fact, the National Hurricane Center nailed its forecast for Katrina. It anticipated a potential hit on New Orleans almost five days before the levees got breached. They concluded that some version of the nightmare scenario they'd been contemplating for some time was probable, just 48 hours away. The problem was not everyone listened to the forecast. About 80,000 New Orleanians, almost a fifth of the city's population, failed to evacuate, and 1,600 died as a consequence. Of course, uh, part of the fault, it turns out, is on Ray Nagin, New Orleans mayor who waited almost 24 hours to call for a mandatory evacuation, even though the National Hurricane Center and weather people were advising him strongly to do so days before. So yeah, I guess the takeaway lesson at the beginning of the chapter is that um, a forecast doesn't do much good if no one's willing to listen to it. But uh, Mr. Silver points out that the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center, etc., Generate weather forecasts by using supercomputers and just doing, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of calculations. But what I found really astonishing was that when you look at like a 10-day forecast, it turns out that a 10-day forecast using all the data you can cram into a supercomputer is in fact less accurate than just using historical climate data to make the prediction. Silver raises the question in the book of... uh, Why, if long-term forecasts aren't any good, outlets like the Weather Channel, which publishes a 10-day forecast, and AccuWeather, which ups the ante and goes for 15, continues to produce them. And they quoted Dr. Bruce Rose, who's the principal scientist and vice president of the Weather Channel, saying that, uh, well, making such a long forecast doesn't really do any harm, and if the ugly truth be told, the statistical reality of accuracy related to forecasts isn't necessarily the governing paradigm when it comes to commercial forecasting. It's more the perception of accuracy that adds value in the eye of the consumer. Now, it turns out that the government, when it makes predictions about weather, is pretty darn good at it, and they bend over backwards to make sure that uh, politics doesn't influence those predictions. 
But when we talk about media bias, we generally are thinking about things like politics. You wouldn't think there'd be a media bias in weather forecasting, but it turns out there is. For example, as opposed to the National Weather Service, for-profit weather forecasters rarely predict an exactly 50% chance of rain, because that seems wishy-washy and indecisive. So they flip a coin and round it up to 60 or down to 40, even though this makes the forecast both less accurate and less honest. Note silver. Most commercial weather forecasts are biased, and probably deliberately so. In particular, they are biased toward forecasting more precipitation than will actually occur, what meteorologists call a wet bias. In fact, the further you get from the government's original data, and the more consumer-facing the forecasts are, the worse this bias becomes. So yes, it turns out that forecasters, quote, add value, unquote, by subtracting accuracy. Now, Mr. Silver took a look at the numbers and reported them on this chapter to note that, uh, for example, the Weather Channel will fudge under certain conditions. Historically, when they say there's a 20% chance of rain, it has actually only rained about 5% of the time. The Weather Channel admits it does this and explains that it's got economic incentives. People notice one kind of mistake, the failure to predict rain, more than another kind, the false alarm. If it rains when it isn't supposed to, they curse the weatherman for ruining their picnic, whereas an unexpectedly sunny day is taken as a serendipitous bonus. It isn't good science, that's for sure, but Dr. Rose told uh, Silver that if the forecast was objective, if it has zero bias in precipitation, we'd probably be in trouble. But it turns out, if you really want to get some bad weather forecasting, skip the Weather Channel and go to your local TV station. In fact, he cites a study by a man named J.D. Eggleston, who was helping his daughter with a, uh, a school project on, on weather forecasting, and he found the data that emerged so interesting, he put it on the Freakonomics blog. Noted Silver, the TV meteorologists weren't placing much emphasis on accuracy. Instead, their forecasts were quite a bit worse than those issued by the National Weather Service, which they could have taken for free from the Internet and reported on the air. And he notes, and notes Silver, they weren't very well calibrated. Citing the station in Kansas City, they noted when the meteorologist said there was a 100% chance of rain, it failed to do so a third of the time. And the forecasters made no apology for it. One of them told Eggleston, there's not any evaluation of accuracy in hiring meteorologists. Accuracy is not a big deal to viewers. Silver notes the attitude seems to be, this is all in good fun. Who cares if there's a little wet bias? Especially if it makes for better television. Silver decries the fact that this logic is circular. TV weathermen say they aren't bothering to make accurate forecasts because they figure the public won't believe them anyway. Silver notes, the public shouldn't believe them because their forecasts aren't accurate. Noted Silver, this becomes a more serious problem when there is something urgent like Hurricane Katrina coming. He notes lots of Americans get their weather information from local sources rather than directly from the Hurricane Center. So they will still be relying on the goofball on Channel 7 to provide them with accurate information. Anyway, I guess the thrust of this chapter is uh, something we've said on this program for a long time. If you want to get some accurate news... Don't expect to get it by watching television, especially local news. You know, Mr. Millen informs me that our sports correspondent, Sean Mitten, actually was a TV weatherman for a while, so we're going to have to bring him back and talk about that, don't you think? 
We don't know if he has any stories like that of uh, David Letterman, who started out as a TV weatherman back in Indianapolis. Uh, In fact, I had a friend here in Sacramento who grew up there and said she and friends would watch the local news just to see how Letterman would do do the weather. He did famously predict at one point that uh, there would be hail the size of canned hams, (laughs) which I guess does explain my... My friend Robin and her friends used to get stoned and <laughs> watch David Letterman do the weather. All right, another science news. How about this piece uh, in New Scientist magazine by Ed Yong? This is worth talking about. It's titled Scared to Death and points out that intimidation is far more common in nature than we realized and that predators can change entire landscapes just by instilling fear. Now, we talked in this program in the past about how Yellowstone reintroduced wolves after exterminating them uh, ill-advisedly, and that uh, the effect of the wolves has been to cull the elk in the park, which were running amok, and that as a result, uh, a lot of the uh, forests are coming back. The young saplings have pretty much been mowed down by the elk previously, and now the habitat is looking more natural. The piece by Ed Young notes that uh, in January of 1995, after a 70-year absence, uh, 31 animals had been captured in Canada, wolves I'm talking about, and then got released into the park. They were fitted with radio collars so the rangers could track their whereabouts. A man named John Landre was also interested in their main prey, the elk. Noting all the damage done to the park's trees, uh, Mr. Landre wanted to know how they would fare now that their old nemesis was back, and by the second year, the answer was obvious. In the parts of Yellowstone the wolves hadn't yet reached, female elk grazed peacefully while their calves uh, jumped about, noting it was a scene out of Disneyland, but in areas where wolves had colonized, things were different. The calves were pinned to the sides of their ever-wary mothers. For Landry, it was a light bulb moment. He realized the wolves don't just kill elk, they also change the deer's behavior without even lifting a claw. Their mere presence, perhaps their scent in the wind and tracks in the dirt, creates a perpetual state of apprehension in their prey. Seen through the eyes of an elk, the physical terrain is overlaid with a mental map of risk. This caused Landre to coin the term landscape of fear. It turns out to be a valid concept with a lot of application. In fact, time and time again, it has emerged that the greatest effect predators have on their prey is not through their direct slaughter, but through intimidation. Since the 70s, studies have shown that predators can force prey to mount costly defenses, such as moving into poorer habitats and being so relentlessly vigilant, they do not have time to eat enough. Researcher from Montana State University, Scott Creel, took a look at the elk populations and noted that when wolves were around, They more than doubled the time they spent on watch. They also moved away from the grassy fields they prefer into the wooded areas that offer more protection, but less food. These changes slashed the amount of energy they were getting by about a quarter, with dire consequences. Creel saw dramatic declines in calf numbers and knew that the wolves were not directly responsible because they rarely kill young elk. Today, the population stands at just over 6,000 elk, down from 19,000 in the elk's wolf-free heyday. And uh, getting taller trees now with less elk uh, grazing has uh, had a ripple effect. With taller trees, uh, the beaver are now thriving, and uh, by damming more rivers, they're turning more of the landscape into an ideal habitat for birds, amphibians, fish, and more. So yeah, there's very much something to this whole balance of nature thing, and obviously predators have a role 
to play in this. These folks that want to shoot all the wolves are, um, well, they're just short-sighted, to put it mildly. All right, final item. A report by the New York Times says that in its early stages, hoarding begins with an inability to throw away junk mail, newspapers, and magazines. In the week magazine, stacks of paper and junk turn into towers, and over time, hoarders find it increasingly difficult to throw anything away, including garbage. Once considered rare, hoarders make up 3 to 5% of the U.S. population, and more than 85 towns and cities have established task forces to deal with the hoarders in their community. The piece notes that extreme clutter takes over people's homes. It buries ovens, showers, and beds. Utility bills get lost, and the water and lights get turned off, leading to unsanitary conditions and an alarming number of fires, generally started by candles lit in place of electricity, which can engulf neighboring homes. Peace notes that many hoarders strongly resist any help with their problem. Quoted one as saying, A therapist told me I should at least throw out my papers, but I couldn't. There were checks in there somewhere. Well, maybe, but uh, probably not. So I guess as we close today, we would encourage all listeners to please sort your checks out from your junk mail. And of course, if you have any cash left over after doing that, you can always send it to us. And one final reminder, if you did not contribute to the KDVS Pledge Drive this year, it's never too late. Fundraiser.kdvs.org is where you can go to do that. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. You got any wolf music to go out with, Mr. McMillan? Ow! Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. You sure are looking good. You're everything a big bad wolf could want. Listen to me, Little Red Riding Hood. I don't think little big girls should go walking in these spooky old woods alone. sheep suit on till I'm sure that you've been shown that I can be trusted walking with you